All right. So Martin Tobias is the founder of Incisive Ventures. He's ex-Accenture, Microsoft, and a former venture partner at Ignition Partners. Martin is a three-times venture-funded CEO and has raised over $500 million as CEO with two IPOs and has also invested in over 200 companies in, as an angel, 75 through Incisive Ventures, and is also a limited partner in over a dozen VC funds. Martin was an early investor in Google, DocuSign, OpenSea, and over a dozen other unicorns. He is the father of three daughters, a cyclist, surfer, poker player, and a student of stoicism. Sounds like a pretty good life, Martin. How are you? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it has been a good life so far, and uh, I'm really excited to continue to be engaged in uh, entrepreneurship uh, as a VC. I'm, I think my time being a CEO is over. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't want to work that hard anymore, but I love <laughs> helping other people work uh, very hard. Are you saying that it's easier to be an investor than a CEO? It's certainly easier to be an investor than a CEO. I mean, I've been in the CEO seat three or four times, and that's a mm -hmm. 70, 80 hour a week job. And yeah. you're responsible for people's, um, you know, food that they bring home, um, not just mm -hmm. the investors, the uh, employees. Um, it's quite a lot of responsibility that I take very seriously. I take my responsibility as an investor very seriously, too. But at the end of the day, you're kind of a co-pilot and, and a mm -hmm. partner uh, to the CEO and uh, the responsibility of the operations are not on, on our shoulders. Sometimes the responsibility of like follow on financing and business development is, but uh, yeah. that's a little more manageable. Um, also, you know, I made the decision um, about three years ago to have a little bit uh, more work-life balance. And, you know, I'm working now 40 hours a week as an investor. And for me, that's half time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your career path that you've taken is pretty common that you've seen to your friends? Like, what do you recommend to people? Do you think it's like, hey, I work really hard, CEO, and then, you know, transition? Or do you find that some people, it's just like they can kind of grind it out forever indefinitely? What do you kind of see amongst your peers? And also, what do you recommend? Um, I recommend that people every couple of years, maybe every five years, basically take serious stock uh, with, you know, of their lives and what they want to do for the next five, what they want their life to look at like five years from now. Yeah. Um, when I was, uh, you know, CEO of a pumping company that went public, you know, I had 450 employees working mm -hmm. 80 hours a week. I thought, what do I want to be doing five years? And I said, I did not want to be doing that. I did not want to <laughs> be working 80 hours a week with 500 yeah. employees. So then you sort of can pat, make, make a path. And I don't, I think everybody will, you know, end up with a different path. Some for some people that might be starting another company. You know, for example, yeah. I love the early part of being a CEO, the sub fifty person company. I did mm -hmm. not like being a CEO of a five hundred person company. It's just mm -hmm. too many people to manage. So yeah. I, at that time, decided to go leave and start another company as opposed to being an investor. I think some people go the investor route. I don't know the numbers. I would guess it's a minority um, mm -hmm. that go from CEO to investor route. I would say the vast majority go from CEO to golf or, you know, some <laughs> board form, member, maybe <laughs> some form of, you know, retirement um, yeah. because uh, being an a professional investor like I am is not retirement. It's still a yeah. job and responsibility because you've got responsibilities to your limited partners, to your CEOs and things like that. So it's a higher level of engagement than than many people want to do. But frankly, it's what I want to do. And it it's turned out to be my path because I suck at golf. <laughs> and, you know, I think a I, lot of people are pretty bad at golf, to be honest. I, I just can't <laughs> sit down. I have retired, um, yeah. you know, four times in my life, basically mm -hmm. taken two years off. 
And, um, you know, I'm no good at it. I'm no mm. good at doing nothing. Um, yeah. e even when I had a young kid, my first daughter, uh, I, I, um, you know, took loud, I, uh, public, the last company to go public in the dot-com boom. And mm -hmm. I took two years off with my one year old and I loved hanging out with my family, but you know, after a year, I knew every word of every Teletubbies song and I hadn't had an adult conversation. I mean, yeah. I was literally going crazy. Uh, so I, I think it gets back to you need to really do a, a pretty deep analysis of what you need to be a, a happy and engaged person. Some people need 80 hours a week. Some people need, you know, lots of free time and travel yeah. with their spouse or their family. For me, I need at least 30, 40 hours a week, a week of hard business type problems to solve in mm -hmm. addition to lots of time with my family. Uh, and that for me meant that being an investor was the, the perfect path. And I can see myself doing this, you know, forever. There's no, in my mind, no retirement where like you reach yeah. the end of the goal and then you just basically do nothing for the rest of your life. I like to do all the things yeah. I want to do at retirement, like now. You yeah. know, I want to go surf. I want to go ride my bike with my friends. I want to have, you know, flexibility in my schedule. Uh, I do everything that some people want to do in retirement, you know, right now. Yeah, no, I really like that approach. And I think that balance is key. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you was that you've had this 25 year career. And, you know, I think that a lot of people sort of don't think about into the future, you know, they don't think five years into the future, they don't think 10 years into the future. And I almost feel like, you know, if you can kind of set up a balance right now, it allows you to never have to retire, and you can kind of just keep working. And, you know, if money is your goal, you could probably make a hell of a lot more working 30 hours a week on something you love for the next 30 years, than working really hard for five or 10 years than being burnt out and, you know, quote unquote, retiring for 20 years, right? No, it, it, exactly. And, 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 I, and I learned that the hard way. I mean, I did that. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I burnt out a little bit and um, had to find a, a, a new balance. Yeah. One of the things that I have really enjoyed, uh, you know, over 25 years, I've been both an operator and an investor going back and forth. Um, I've invested for 25 years and I've been an operator and venture funded operator three times. I like both roles, um, but I've also done it through multiple cycles. You know, we, Laudai was the absolute last company to go public in the dot-com boom. We went public yeah. on March 17th of 2000. The peak was March 21st. Um, so we were, uh, and, and I always I love say- I you still remember the date. <laughs> of course. Uh, well, I mean, if I had been five days later, we would not have been a public company. And it's wow. and what I say about bubbles is it's better to be inside of them than after uh, when they yeah. burst. Um, uh, but uh, I was in the running a company called Imperium Renewables in the 2008 crash, and mm -hmm. with that company, we did not make the IPO window. The IPO window closed before we were able to get it public. Uh, I was, you know, investing through the 2020 uh, crash. And, and it's actually uh, pretty interesting to have seen the cycles in both the public and private markets that happen, because then as an investor, you have a much better perspective as to what cycle you're in, how long it's going to take for these to recover, what it takes to, you know, last through a, a down cycle and things like that. And uh, I'm a little uh, concerned by some investors that I uh, see who have started their careers maybe in the last 10 years. Uh, in November of last year, we basically ended a 12-year bull run in venture yeah. capital. 
And um, if you had only been investing during the bull times, your ideas of um, you know how things work in the venture ecosystem are very different than if you have been through crashes before. Um, so uh, I am personally happy that I went through crashes yeah. because I think it makes me uh, a better investor and mentor to CEOs now, especially young CEOs who may have started, you know, just in the last four or five years, they probably never saw a bust. Yeah. Happen. What's the one sort of big takeaway that you have from those crashes that you sort of keep in mind going forward? Um, well, I mean, there's a couple, uh, always raise more money than you think. Um, okay. and, uh, focus on, uh, what's in your control, not outside your control. Um, you know, uh, for example, um, when I took loud, Eye public, um, you know, we had $120 million of cash and the stock market mm -hmm. crashed around us. Um, what we did is said, okay, you know, we need a much lower burn rate. Despite having a, a, a money in the bank, we could have burnt money uh, more right then. But we're like, we have to control what we can control, which is our spend. We cannot control the fact that the stock market crashed around us, that customers are all running away. We can't control the outside environment. We can only control our inside um, environment and what you do. And I think the best CEOs uh, do that. I mean, you saw the memos going out, you know, last year from yep. DCs saying, you know, the environment's changing, switch your uh, thing from growth at any cost to growth at a reasonable cost. Um, mm -hmm. You know, control what you can and only respond, you know, but but take advantage. You know, if you're in a bubble, if you're in a hype cycle, take advantage of it. Um, you know, I, I talked to a, a, a founder uh, like three weeks ago and he said, you know, I only want to raise uh, $500,000 $500, at five. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sell more than 10% of the company. And I said, uh, first of all, I think that's not enough money. Um, second of all, uh, you have demand for about a million and a half. Yeah. I think you should raise as much money as you can. Well, I'm worried about dilution. And I'm like, you know, you know, 90% of something, you know, 70% of something is better than 90% of nothing. Yeah. Um, and the number one risk in today's environment is follow on financing and your ability mm -hmm. to convince people uh, to continue to give you money. Um, in a free money environment, which we just exited, people could raise every six months. Right now, um, it's hard to raise every 12 or 18 months. So, um, you know, I encourage people to be less valuation sensitive and more, you know, run, runway uh, optimizing. Yeah, no, I, I like that advice. And, you know, I, I definitely, uh, uh, I'm ready to dig into your investing career thoughts and insights. Yeah. Before we, we dig into that, um, I do want to give uh, the audience a quick uh, background. And so, you know, you mentioned that you've done 200 angel investments, uh, 75, mm -hmm. and additional 75 through Incisive. What's your uh, sort of day to day? Are you still making angel investments these days? Or is it all from your fund now? No, I'm not. I'm not doing direct angel investments. I'm all direct investing from the fund. I'm on my second fund, which is a $10 million pre-seed fund. Cool. And we write uh, 150 to $400,000 checks uh, into pre-seed, which I define as having an MVP in the market for at least three months of some initial revenue traction, companies raising 500 to a million and a half dollars. Uh, Very cool. Um, and what type of startups do you look for in, um, I guess, pre-seed? Well, um, you know, one of the things I did uh, when the pandemic started was that I sat and looked at all those 200 companies I have ever, ever invested in, all the LP mm -hmm. interests that I had in venture capitalists, 
And one of the things I noticed is that as a direct investor, I was performing about a 6.8x TBPI versus my LP interests, which were about a 2.6x. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm about two, two time, three times better direct investor than through yeah. um, VCs. So maybe I should do that. And then I looked and said, okay, which ones was I really good at? And mm-hmm. where did I get lucky? So I said, I've been in over a dozen unicorns. Frankly, half of them, I just got lucky. And I didn't yeah. really know anything. And uh, if you're looking at creating an investment thesis, you can't plan on replicating luck, but you can plan mm-hmm. on replicating uh, a thesis. So the ones where I had a particular opinion um, that turned out to be right, that was counterintuitive at the time, I tried to replicate those. And a perfect example, and so my thesis is software that reduces friction at scale. And a perfect example of that is um, uh, DocuSign. So uh, Mm -hmm. DocuSign, you can sign something on your phone instead of a fax machine. There's millions of signatures a day. There's the scale. Uh, The technology is really, you know, making people's lives better in a material way that something that happens millions of times a day. Um, Frankly, that was a hard company to get funded in the beginning because people thought this looks like a feature, not a company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adobe could copy it in five seconds. But they were able to put workflow around it, the signing order and all of this stuff, integrate with um, document management systems and turn it into a platform. And that was my bet. I said, I bet they can turn it into a platform and it's not just a feature. That was a counterintuitive bet. Not many people believed it, but it turned out to be correct. And that's how, you know, Ignition made like 400 times their money on DocuSign. So I keep looking for companies that are like that, that sound like Mm -hmm. bullshit, but if they work, they change everything. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, I feel like a lot of the uh, best startups, you know, that sort of end up with the best exit, like at one time, they sounded like terrible ideas, right? Yeah, I mean, look at otherwise, they would have already been done. You've heard that many times, you know, Paul, uh, you know, Graham talks about Airbnb, you know, people sleeping on your couch, are you fucking kidding me? You know, Uber, (laughs) um, you know, are people going to drive their cars around? But how big was the rideshare market before Uber? It was zero. They created demand that was never existing uh, before you had the technology. And that's another aspect that I look for is somebody that could potentially create a blue ocean, uh, you know, and many, there's people that have done that very successfully in fintech, take a company Mm -hmm. like Brex, um, you know, they underwrote small businesses using a different underwriting criteria that the other credit card companies weren't doing. They got a ton of customers that never existed before. I invested in a company doing something similar in Latin America called Jeeves, which is another credit card company. But that's Mm -hmm. another thing, using technology to expand uh, product access to a group of customers that have never had it before. Um, That is a great uh, model that consistently works. Yeah. So if I was a founder today, I feel like one of the things that I would really value about, you know, having you as a potential investor uh, would be your 25 years of experience, you know, kind of having taken public companies. And I feel like especially in this market, you know, where it's tough, much tougher, you know, to start to get funding, they do follow on funding. So what are you sort of telling today's founders? You know, what are you sort of educating them on? What's like the number one thing, either a mistake they're making or something that it's like, hey, here's where I can just give you great insight and help a ton. Well, it depends very much on the stage, um, mm. but um, well, let's let's go pre-seed since that's your specialty. Pre-seed, you know, you basically only have to do two things in pre-seed. You have mm-hmm. to get enough product market fit to attract the next round of investors, and then you have to raise that next round. You're almost never mm-hmm. creating a profitable company in uh, pre-seed. 
So right. you don't really, you hope that you have most of the team there. Hopefully you have a business founder, a technical co-founder. Hopefully it's not a lot of hiring and business development. It's getting the, the, the product market fit correct um, and, mm -hmm. and start to get the market to pull your product uh, through. So that's really the job at Precede. And if you do that well enough into sort of the top 10% of companies in your category, the seed and series A investors will write you a follow-on check. But the number one thing, which mistake I see most um, pre-seed CEOs make is to just raise money and to tell people like, you say, what's your use of proceeds? Well, I'm going to hire some people and I'm going to you know, write some code. What you need to do in pre-seed is you need to know the traction metrics that the seed or the Series A investors want to see in order mm -hmm. to write that check for you. And you need to put a plan together to raise enough money to achieve those objectives. Most precede CEOs do not do that. They're just wanting to get money to do whatever the hell they want to do without a real mm -hmm. view of how far they have to get. That's why you see so many precede companies doing precede plus, precede extensions, bridge mm -hmm. rounds. It's because they misraised or they did a hand to mouth raise you know, just getting mm -hmm. safes went up from their pals as soon as they can, but they never got enough money to complete a unit of work that is going to be your next valuation milestone. So that's the number mm -hmm. one problem I see most pre-seed CEOs doing is not building a financing round to fund a specific set of KPIs that are have a high degree of confidence that are going to unlock the next funding round. Got it. So what would you tell those pre-seed founders uh, to start talking to, you know, I guess, seed investors early? And yes. So that they I, understand? I tell, like, how do you know what those KPIs talk, and talk metrics to, Talk to seed and series A founder, mm -hmm. talk to seed and series A VCs. They're going to tell you no, mm -hmm. but if you're lucky, mm -hmm. they will tell you exactly what mm -hmm. would be a yes. So for example, I just did that um, with this company called Tangibly. Um, tangibly went and pitched. It's a legal tech company doing um, yeah. vertical market software for trade secrets. They pitched uh, a partner at Madrona and Madrona is a big multi-stage mm -hmm. fund. They said, we like your category. We like you. You're too early. They sent them to me, but they told me, um, it, I like this guy if they do X, Y, and Z. And they gave me three KPIs. We would be interested in leading the seed. So I talked to the CEO, I, I, we redid his plan. Rather than his plan being mm -hmm. what he wanted to do, we said, what's the plan Got to it. achieve those three things that Madrona told you they want to achieve? That's a slightly different plan, right? Mm -hmm. So we put that plan together. We raised, uh, I led the, the pre-seed, we raised $750,000. The company a year later overachieved their plan, went back to Madrona, uh, gave them the update. Madrona gave them a term sheet. They just raised $7 million in a seed round. But they were cool. shooting for a goal post uh, that they knew. Mm -hmm. What uh, what KPI specifically would this be? Sort of, you know, month over month growth, revenue, what kind of, uh, what are the sort of most common three KPIs that you would look to? And like, what would be, I don't know, it might be different for every company. It's but different for every company, like but typically example. for a B2B software company, it would mm -hmm. be uh, ARR, um, month over month MRR growth, um, a certain uh, scale of um, customer breadth, typically, mm -hmm. you know, 10 
or more mm. enterprise customers, and also a, a couple of KPIs around uh, customer retention and hopefully, um, you know, net revenue retention. So basically, yeah. are you able to land and expand? Do cut do do pilots convert to paid users? Do paid users buy more seats? Because that's really, um, you know, what uh, the the Series A guys are looking for is: can I pour gas on this thing that's yeah. working um, to 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 really um, kick it in the butt? You you have to show enough customer engagement and enough. Um, net revenue retention to to tell a convincing story um, that 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 get more money will will you know get higher revenues. Gotcha. Yeah. No. I uh, I, I like that. Um, and uh, you know, I think definitely. Uh, I feel like I might uh, also take that one step further and maybe talk to two or three seed VCs and kind of get their positions and then maybe triangulate. Well, exactly. I don't know if I want to put all my eggs in one basket, but. But, but, but the, the interesting exercise there is every CEO says, I want to execute like this. And rarely <laughs> it goes back to my self-awareness thing that I do for myself. Rarely yeah. do they say, is that the right path? Am I going to on to the right place, right? Mm -hmm. But if you talk to two or three uh, later stage guys, they tell you what they want to see. You might change your plan, and you're going to have a much so. For example, you know you're going to have a much higher uh, uh, degree of success raising follow-on financing if you are shooting for something that that you know people are interested in. The average. Uh, pre-seed company, if you look at uh, PitchBook, only 30% mm -hmm. of them raise follow-on financing. 70% yeah. of pre-seed companies fail to raise follow-on financing and they fail. In my portfolio, 74% of my pre-seed investments have raised follow-on financing. Um, so that's two and a half times better than the average pre-seed funded company. Yeah. Um, I think in part, I'm better at picking good teams, but this process of thinking about sizing the pre-seed round to achieve a known set of KPIs, which have a high degree yeah. of confidence of getting follow-on financing is another key aspect in being able to attract that follow-on financing because you're executing a plan which has a high confidence set of goals instead yeah. of just whatever the fuck you feel like doing. Which, frankly, yeah, you see really, many people do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I really like that stat that you shared because I think it sort of makes founders think about, you know, obviously they're always, especially if they're a hot company or if it's in, you know, more of a, a bull market, they might have their more choice, you know, when it comes to investors. And, you know, obviously there's sort of the name brand, you know, it's like who actually you can kind of, you know go ask. And it's, I guess it's more subjective, like, hey, is this person a great investor? And it's like, yeah, that's my best friend. He's a great investor. But you're sort of bringing that plus your experience, which is kind of more the qualitative stuff. Now you have this quantitative data point of follow on funding, which to me, you know, I never really thought about it that way. But that seems like a huge KPI, um, you know, for success. Are there any other KPIs like that? Or anything else you think about? You know, that's, that's the main one. Uh, you yeah. know, um, of the 65 companies that I invested in in the last three years, they have raised a combined over two and a half billion dollars of follow on financing. And um, that's another KPI pre-seed investors track is how much has their portfolio raised over time. Um, that's yeah. that's pretty high. Um, yeah, I, I definitely like uh, that one. I mean, I guess, though, that could easily be 
you know, not, I mean, the, the sort of absolute amount isn't as important, I guess, as the percent of companies. I, I think the percent, average, right? the percent of companies is much more indicative because yeah. um, that's the number one job in pre-seed. You have to get that next mm-hmm. round done. And yeah. I'm surprised how few pre-seed and specifically angels. I mean, the angels are the worst at this. Um, <laughs> angels are like... Well, that's why we're here on this podcast. I know. but Well, so here's something I would encourage angels to do. I would say, think about who's going to mark up your deal. And Mm -hmm. because most of them, most angels, and I started when I was an angel doing this, I'm like, I meet a guy, seems interesting, uh, seems like he's building something interesting. Great. Here's $25,000. Here's $50,000. You might as well be flushing that shit down the toilet. If you (laughs) don't have any connection or understanding to who's going to write the next check or what mm-hmm. other companies are uh, building in that space. Maybe there's a hundred companies building something similar. You know, how much total money has the company raised? How much runway do yeah. they have? Can they achieve, you know, you, you, uh, you sometimes a $25,000 check, you're giving a company, you know, um, one month of runway. Like what is the company yeah. really going to do? with that money. You, unless you give the company or a part of a round that gives the company enough runway to uh, achieve something important, that's the number one reason companies fail. They don't raise enough money to achieve enough to uh, get more money. And uh, angels uh, in particular fall into that trap because um, you know they, a lot of these rounds are hand to mouth, you know, rolling closes, you know, just writing checks whenever you can. And that's incredibly risky strategy because you, the company can never have enough money to achieve enough milestones to get validated in the market. I mean, it's, it's a very risky way to do it. Yeah, well, I guess this is good timing because I uh, am on the verge of writing a 25K check right now into a company and a founder that I just met really like the team, really like the product. And they're sort of in a situation where, you know, they've got uh, maybe three, four, five hundred thousand dollars that they've, you know, kind of got soft circled and then a couple potential leads in the pre-seed side that they're talking to. So what would you advise? Um, haven't said yes yet, but I'm, I've got an email drafted that's basically a yes. What would you advise uh, someone like me in that situation? Like I've asked some questions, but what, what would you be looking for um, when it comes to especially like that follow on funding and, well, um, you know, sort of. The- I would do some diligence to see if that, you know, funding is real. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many CEOs have told me, you know, XYZ VC is interested. I call them and they say, no, I passed. So, you know, it it is not beyond CEOs to overstate investor interest. And you don't want to be the one investor who wires when the other investors uh, don't. So Mm -hmm. I would do some diligence on that. Um, I would also want, you know, so would you say that in this situation, I should only invest if there's going to be, you know, if they get a lead for this to come in? How do you handle it? Well, especially because I think that's where it's tough with the 25K it, checks, right? If you're, if you are the, the lead at the pre-seed, it's a lot easier because you kind of have that conviction and you're, you know, driving most of it. Whereas with me, you can imagine for a founder, you know, they don't love someone like me saying, hey, I'll invest if, you know, you get a lead, right? Well, exactly. A if you're a small check like that, you, it, it, it's, it's hard to say you'll invest if. Um, personally, as an angel, I don't write any more idea stage angel uh, checks into sort of sub $500,000 rounds where it's, you know, 20 guys at $25,000. I just don't do it because 
to, there's even higher than 30 higher than 70% failure rate of those companies. Uh, if so, if I were you, um, um, and you wanted to participate in a real pre-seed, um, I would say, uh, to them, yes, I will participate, but you need a lead. And I, mm-hmm. I would not as an angel want to participate in an unfunded, underfunded round. Um, now yeah. they're not going to really like that. Um, but if I were to invest prior to the pre-seed, I would want some huge premium. I would want like yeah. 50% or 30% of the potential follow-on round price, uh, which is also hard to do. Um, frankly, I would recommend that angels get in alongside institutional investors in the pre-seed and you can tell them why they should get you in because maybe it's a you know $700,000 round and the professional investors are taking 600 of it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, CEOs should take four or five high value angels for those small checks because they're going to get a lot of value out of those people. And you need to present yourself as an angel as one of those people that can add value, which is why they should let you in yeah. as opposed to taking that extra hundred from another institutional guy. Um, I recommend to CEOs, even where I am an institutional investor, I'm like, take at least 30% of the round and give it to the highest value angels you can find. Uh, because yeah. they're for them, that's a material amount of money, and they're going to do a lot of. They're going to work their ass wor- off. Right? Work like their me. ass off, maybe <laughs> even harder than a fund will. <laughs> yeah. So um, I encourage CEOs in pre-seed to make room for angels, and I encourage angels to do it in pre-seed because then you're participating in a fairly fully funded round. Personally, I would never, as an angel, do any of these. I don't care how much I like them hand to mouth, you know, 25 K safes every, you know, couple weeks type rounds. I just would yeah. not do those. Cool. Well, that's good advice and very uh, timely for me. So appreciate that, uh, Martin. And I really appreciate you sharing all your experience. Before we let you go, I do have a couple uh, trending Twitter threads that I want to get your take on because I know you are uh, active on Twitter, yes. right? All right, let's do it. So I'm going to share this first one here on the screen. Um, it is, and I'll read it off, from Koki Hasiotis. Um, and let's see, she is uh, building something new and investing. Uh, she says, apparently VCs are suggesting that for seed rounds and extensions, founders need to be generating $750,000 to $1 million in revenue to not take a flat or down round. True or false? What do you think, Martin? Well, it depends on what the um, you know original price of the seed round was. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I am. I think those numbers are a little bit high. I am seeing seed rounds uh, happen from professional VCs at about a five hundred thousand dollar ARR run rate. So um, having seven fifty or a million, it would be a seed plus or sort of a yeah. a, 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 a more advanced uh, seed. Um, but um, valuations in the seed are like around 15 million. They're definitely down from last year where they were on averaging around 25. Um, so I, I don't know what the, in that, in her thread, what the original yeah. uh, valuation was, um, but valuations at seed are down about 50% and traction metrics are up about a hundred percent. So in order to have a flat round, yeah, you've got to have about double the revenue ARR that people would expect it to get the same valuation that you would have last year. Yeah, definitely. So time to make money. Yes. 
<laughs> All right, cool. I'll uh, go ahead and share the next one. And it is from Darren Marble right here. Pull it up on the screen. Uh, Darren's... Oh, actually... oh, I know Darren, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, actually, no, that was, that was the background. I'm going to switch, okay. so I'm going to do Mark, Mark Randolph, um, who co-founder of Netflix. So, you know, some people know him. He says, most VCs won't say no outright. They won't say yes either. They'll want to gather more data, evaluate your progress, and see how the space evolves. So if they're not tripping over themselves to follow up with you, it usually means they just aren't that into you. It may sound harsh, but that's the way it works. What do you think? 100%. Yeah, uh, I feel like, you know, I make a lot of intros to investors for founders that I work with, and they're always, you know, kind of bugging me. What'd they say? What'd they think? And I'm like, uh, it probably isn't good if they're not you know, replying to you yet. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I receive about 300 um, companies a month. I take about 60 meetings. So I say no mm -hmm. without, you know, right away to 240 of them. Um, out of those 60 meetings, uh, I say no to 55 of them and start diligence on five of them. But I tell people mm -hmm. in the meeting, yes or no. And that's frankly unusual. What he's talking about is more usual, which is people will say, this sounds interesting, da, 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 da. But yeah. if a VC doesn't say, I'm starting diligence, I'm going to yeah. dig in. I want, I'm sending you a list of information that I want to see financial gotcha. references. If they don't engage like that, it's a no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Got it. Have you ever sort of, you know, been added to an investor update or, you know, sort of tracked a company for months or years at a time and then invested later in a company that you eventually, you initially passed on? Yes, of course I have. Uh, one mm -hmm. thing that I do not necessarily like is um, CEOs who add me to their investor updates after I said no and did not ask for the investor updates. If I ask for the investor updates, I mean, th there are times where I where the stage or the timing is just not right. And I really do want to follow on and I ask for investor yeah. updates. If I ask for updates, please send me updates. If I do not ask for updates, mm -hmm. please do not send me updates. Got it. I guess uh, you may not like that, but I'm, if I'm a founder, do you think there's a downside? You know, I, I add you to there's, investor there's updates. There's no downside it, but, for you. You know, in six months, it's like, oh my God, we have meteoric uh, traction. There, there's like, no oh, downside shit, and I see more founders doing it. It doesn't, it's it's not a big enough red flag to make me not want yeah. to invest in your company. It's just slightly annoying. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So um cool well uh i i appreciate uh, all of uh, your insights and input if people want to uh, pitch you uh if people uh, sounds like you have a in input form on your website or where should they go to follow you find you and uh, uh pitch you if, yeah, they're, uh, if they're a founder they should follow me i'm mostly active on twitter it's martin g tobias and i have a link in my bio uh which is a bitly link um and you can pitch cool. me there um it's an Airtable. Uh, I much prefer that versus email because I have some scoring and, and ranking algorithms and workflow stuff that helps me nice. automate um, getting meetings and reviewing decks and things like that. So I would, uh, uh, that's also linked on my website, which is incisive.vc, where you can read my blog and read about my thesis. The reason I'm very active on Twitter and my blog is that, you know, founders and CEO and, and VCs are in this low probability matching game. I say no 99% of the time. They hear no 99% of the time. What can help a low probability matching game? If each people communicates more, 
about what they like, what stage, what, you know, verticals, things like that. I have seven meta themes that I like to invest in. I publish them on my blog. Read those. If you don't fit in those, it's unlikely that I will be interested in investing in your company. It doesn't mean your company's no good. It just means that I'm not the right investor yeah. for you. Very cool. Well, we will link up to all that information in the show notes and uh, people can uh, take a look, follow you on Twitter for all of your great uh, insights and appreciate you coming on, Mark. All right. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. Take care.